So let's hear now the word of God. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. May God bless this reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes as we study your word together this morning. As we study this vision that you gave long ago to the prophet Zechariah. We pray that you would speak once again to our hearts and apply it to our church and apply it to our lives. We pray that you might make us long to see the rule of Christ established in our lives and throughout the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever wonder that maybe, just maybe, God is is done with you? Maybe you've stumbled into some serious sin. Maybe you've tried your best over and over again to live for Him, but you've fallen short. Maybe you've just gotten older, and I don't think this is a word, but it's the way I feel in the mornings, tireder. Or your health is not so good anymore. And you wonder if there's any way that you can still serve God. But whatever the reason, you feel like your best days are behind you. You don't feel as close to the Lord as you once were. You wonder if He's still there with you and for you. 
and if he can ever use you again in a significant way. Now, I know that some of you will right away say, I never feel this way, and I say praise God for that. But others among us today perhaps know all too well the kind of discouragement that I'm talking about as did some of the greatest heroes of the Bible, Joseph and David, Elijah and John the Baptist. The context of this book of Zechariah that we've been studying with a faithful band in Sunday school this fall is that God's people had finally been judged for their ongoing, long-standing idolatry and sin. And they were sent into exile into Babylon in 586 B.C. Now they've returned from the exile. And they're trying to rebuild the temple which lays in ruins. But will God still be their God? Will he once again inhabit the temple that they are rebuilding? Or is he perhaps done with them? God gave this vision in the passage that we study today to Zechariah to encourage the people that he was still their God, that he was their Savior and Defender, and that he still had great things in store for them. And so the message of this vision is, if you're discouraged, don't lose heart, because God has not forsaken you or any of his chosen and beloved people. Now let's be clear. The people of Israel had sinned time and time again. Generation after generation, king after king, had forgotten the Lord, had failed to keep his commandments, and had even begun to worship the idols of the Canaanites and the other nations that surrounded them. And so after repeated warnings, God finally did what they never thought that he would really do. He allowed their nation to fall into the hands of a pagan enemy. You could also say that God used the Babylonians to discipline and judge his people. But that didn't mean that God had given up on his people forever, just as loving parents haven't given up on their children when they determine it's necessary to discipline them. And so we read that in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. And that's how the book of Zechariah opens. That's the beginning of Zechariah's message as a prophet. Return to me, and I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you. And in Isaiah 54, verse 7, we read, For a brief moment I deserted you, 
but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And so we see first that God is our Savior and Defender. God is our Savior and Defender. In, uh, in 1 John 2 we read, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. My friends, you must never forget who your accuser is and who your defender is. Let me say that again. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, never forget who your accuser is and who your defender is. You see, the world will try to convince you that God is your accuser and that Satan is your defender. After all, God is the one who's saying, thou shalt not. And Satan is the one who's saying, well, that's really not so bad. Everybody else is doing it. And so you can begin to believe that God is your accuser and Satan is your defender. But the Bible gives us a very different picture. It tells us that actually Satan is always the accuser of believers. God is ultimately our defender. Satan is the one who says, look at all that this so-called child of yours has done. Or if he or she hasn't done it yet, think about what they would do if they if they knew they had the opportunity and could get away with it. And who is our defender? Well, we certainly can't defend ourselves because we are, in fact, guilty. We are sinners. In the legal world, it's almost always a bad idea to try to defend yourself, despite the fact that it's frequently done on television and in the movies. But that's exactly what many people try to do in the spiritual world. Though they're hopelessly guilty before God, they attempt to defend themselves by relying on their good works or their reputation among others. And this can never work because God knows our hearts and all of our secret thoughts and all of our impure motives. No, Satan is not our defender and we cannot defend ourselves. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and a a key purpose of God's law is that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. But my friends, the Bible also says that if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father. We have a defender, and that defender is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for us. He paid in full the penalty for our sins. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you must never forget 
who your true defender is. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are a believer, remember. Remember who your accuser is and remember who your defender is. Our defender is Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. But you see, like Joshua, our clothes were filthy and unfit to be in the presence of a holy God. Now, when I was a boy... And unfortunately, that was a long time ago. You got all dressed up to go to church. Uh, The little girls all wear dresses, and a good many of them still do that today. And uh, the little boys uh, all wore coats and little clip-on ties, and we were just really cute and kind of geeky looking. But back in those days, you know, you had... Ward Cleaver, who also kept his coat and tie on at supper, and his wife June cooked and cleaned the house in a dress and high heels. Now, my wife has some nice dresses, and one year I I bought her a pearl necklace, but I have not been able to convince her to cook and clean the house in a dress and heels and pearls. Because like it or not, we just live in more casual times today. But in the Old Testament era, the priests wore elaborate vestments. And it was essential that these holy garments be clean because they were ministering in his temple. And the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go into the holy place and then into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God on earth. But now as these exiles have come back from 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 exile in Babylon and they're seeking to rebuild the temple and they have a high priest and his name is Joshua and in Zechariah's vision he sees Joshua and Joshua is not in these beautiful clean and elaborate vestments but his vestments are filthy and soiled and smelly and dirty 
And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand the symbolism. Joshua, as the high priest, was representing the people of God. And and his vestments, which were soiled, were representing the, the, the sins of the people. And they were unfit to be in a relationship with God. They were unfit to be in the presence of God. And so what does God do in this passage? Does he kick Joshua out of his presence? Does he tell him, go away and come back when you've cleaned up your act? No. The angel of the Lord orders that the filthy garments be removed from Joshua and then clothes him with pure vestments and has a clean turban put on his head. And so we read in verse 4, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's what God does for us. And we can't do it for ourselves. He removes the clothes that are soiled and filthy because of our sins. And he gives us clothes and vestments that are clean and impure and that are worthy to be in the presence of God. In fact, the New Testament tells us we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's righteousness was credited to us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ as Joshua was clothed in pure vestments so that he could stand before the Lord. So the point is this. No matter how defeated or discouraged you may sometimes feel, God has not forsaken you. You may have wandered and you may have stumbled. You may not be as healthy or as strong as you once were, but God has chosen you and loved you. He has rescued you like a burning stick pulled from the fire. He is your savior and defender. He has washed your sins away and clothed you with the righteousness of Christ. And in Hebrews 13, 5, he promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And so like the believers of Zechariah's day, God wants you to know and to know for sure that he has not forsaken you. And the second thing that we learn in this passage is to take heart and don't be discouraged. God is not finished with you, but he still has great plans for you. God still has plans for you. God still has things for you to do, important things for you to do. God has plans for you. And so we read in verse 6 and 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, 
and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. You see, Joshua's call was renewed. And in fact, not only was it renewed, but his responsibilities were expanded. Because now he's not only going to be the high priest, but he's also going to be given responsibilities that previously had only been for the king. He is going to be able to rule. He is going to be called to rule in God's house. In other words, not only had God not forsaken his people during the exile, he still had big plans for them. And in fact, he was just getting started. And we see this promise in a number of places, particularly in Jeremiah, where we read, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, the 70 years of the exile, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for a future. Plans for a hope. God has plans for you. God has plans for his church. God has plans For us today, as he had plans for this band of exiles that had come back from Babylon into the rubble of Jerusalem and the rubble of the temple. He had plans for them. He was not through with them. And God is not finished with us either. But we also see that God's fullest blessings, his richest blessings often come on the condition of obedience. And so he says to Joshua in verse 7, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And you can go to Deuteronomy 28. And in that chapter, and I can't read the whole chapter, I'll hit a couple of high spots, you see this this catalog of God's blessings as a result of obedience and the consequences and and curses of the people's disobedience. So listen to just a few verses. He says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And listen to this. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about blessings overtaking you? Perhaps this Thanksgiving you thought to count your blessings as the old hymn said. But God promises to his people, if you will obey my commands, 
my blessings will be poured out on you and they will overtake you. But in the same way, later in the chapter, he says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And so many of God's blessings and God's promise to Zechariah, God's promise to Joshua, the high priest, was conditioned on obedience. If you want to know God's greatest blessing in your life, you need to You need to follow his commands. They are commands for your good. They are commands given to you by a loving father who knows what's best for you. And time and time again, they have proven themselves to be true. That when people follow God's word and God's law and God's commands, the blessings of God overtake them. God's fullest blessings often come on the condition of obedience. And then there's another thing. Joshua is granted and promised unprecedented access to the Father. So we read in verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. Let me back up to verse 7. He says, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. He says, I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Where was Joshua the high priest standing? Well, he was standing in the presence of the angel of the Lord, who in the Old Testament usually represents the second person of the Trinity. So the meaning of this promise is that if Joshua will walk in God's ways and keep his commandments, he will have direct, intimate, personal access to the Lord himself. One commentator writes, Within the temple system, the high priest had the most intimate access to God, he alone being permitted to enter the Holy of Holies. Yet the Lord promises Joshua here an even greater access than that. He will be privy to the divine counsel itself. He will have uninhibited access to God himself as only a few others had been granted. My friends, in this era of the new covenant in which we live, we have seen this promise reach its fulfillment. And so we read in Ephesians 3, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And then in Hebrews we read, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain. And Robert alluded to that in his prayer earlier this morning. Through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great 
priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, for all of those years, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go before the Ark of the Covenant and plead on behalf of the people at the mercy seat. Only the high priest once a year had direct access to God. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today because of what he has done, because the, the veil that, that separated the temple was, was rent in two, we have access. We have access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he wants us to come to him boldly. And with confidence because of what Christ has done for us. Now what if you really believed you had that kind of access to the Lord? How would it change your prayer life? How would that encourage you as you seek to live for and serve the Lord? As believers, we're not only invited, but we're urged to enter into the holy places and to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and boldness because of the blood of Christ. And then finally in this passage, we see that God is doing something new. God is doing something new in the world, and the best is yet to come. You see, they believed that the best days were behind them. They believed that the best days were the glory days when, when, when David was the king, when, when Solomon built the temple, when the country was united, when the queen of Sheba came and said, you know, I've, I've seen it now with my own eyes and the half has not been told. And they felt like the glory days were all behind them. But this word of encouragement that God has for these exiles through the prophecy of Zechariah, through the vision that he gives in this passage is that God is doing something new in the world. God is doing something new in the world and the best is yet to come. And so he says in verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on that stone I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. He says, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, what's, what's the picture here? The picture here is of a, 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 of a tree maybe a very great tree that, that has been cut down several years ago in a big storm at, at our house, an oak tree fell. And, and I measured the, the circumference of the trunk of that oak tree, and it was, it was over eight feet in circumference. They had to bring a crane in 
to pull it out. It was so big. This is, this is what they see. They see a stump, and that's all they see. They see the stump of the nation. They see the, the stump of the monarchy. They see the, the, the stump of, of, of all of their dreams, and they believe that, that their best days are behind them. And God says, guess what? I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, out of this stump. Isaiah puts it this way. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. You see, all they could see was the stump. All they could see was a temple that was in rubble and ruins and the walls of the city that had been knocked down in the humiliation of 70 years of exile in Babylon. But God said, there shall come forth from the stump a shoot, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And we also read in Jeremiah, and I can't read all of these verses. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The situation looked hopeless in Jerusalem. The people were discouraged. They thought the best days were behind them. And God said, no, I'm about to do something new. I'm going to send a branch. And he's going to spring forth from the root of Jesse. And he's going to the Spirit of the Lord is going to be on him. And he's going to rule with wisdom and righteousness and justice. From our vantage point as New Testament believers, we now know that this righteous branch was Jesus Christ. To the people of the Old Testament, it was a beautiful prophecy that they had to take on faith. But to us, it is the words of the prophets now made more certain. Joshua the high priest may have foreshadowed this branch, but Yeshua of Nazareth is the true Messiah who came to earth to save his people from their sin. And it's by his death and resurrection he has delivered us from sin and death and judgment. And when he returns... He will reign as our just and righteous king. And we will live with him in peace and in joy and in security forever. And then in verse 9, we read about this stone, this single stone with seven eyes or seven pairs of eyes. And this is the most difficult part of this vision to interpret. But many commentators believe that that it refers to the other parts of the, the vestments of the high priest. We've already heard about his, his, his robe and his, his turban. And now, perhaps these stones 
represent the ephod and the breastpiece, which together held 14 stones. Now keep in mind that during the exile, for the first time in centuries, there was no temple. There was no tabernacle. There, there were no sacrifices. There, there was no day of atonement. There were no rituals. And so according to the, the, uh, the faith and the theology that these people had, there was no way of salvation because the temple had been destroyed and the sacrifices had ceased. And so what would it mean to them to see a picture of the high priest once again, now no longer in filthy garments, but in pure, clean, shining garments, fully arrayed in all of his priestly vestments as they begin to rebuild the temple. I think the message was that God is about to do a new work of redemption among his people. God is once again going to inhabit his temple. God is once again going to be the Lord and the Savior and the Deliverer of his people. But, unlike the sacrifices of the past, which had to be repeated over and over again, God says that through the ministry of this high priest, that he will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day, in verse 9. And that's exactly what Christ has done for us. In one day, in one sacrifice, he died on the cross, he bore the punishment, he bore the guilt of all of our sins, once and for all, past, present, and future, for all eternity. And so we read in the book of Hebrews that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you are a believer in Christ, you don't have to come back to him over and over again for forgiveness when you fall. He has already paid the price for your sins once and for all on the cross. Now we should certainly come to him and humbly confess our sins daily, regularly. And seek the power of the Holy Spirit to grow in grace and to overcome sin in our lives and to be made more into the image of Christ. But we don't have to be forgiven over and over again each time we commit a new sin. Christ has paid the penalty once and for all for us. We have been justified. We've been declared righteous by faith and we can be assured of his grace and mercy. And finally, as we come to verse 10, we see that we will be with Christ. We will be with him and we'll have joy and peace for all eternity. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now that sounds kind of quaint to us. I don't have a vine and uh, I don't have a fig tree. Uh, but if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 4, when 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 God wanted to paint a picture of a nation at rest and at peace. 
he wrote in his word, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. And the theme gets repeated in Micah chapter 4 in some verses that I'm sure you're familiar with. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. But of course the basis for this hope in a peaceful future is found in the preceding verses. The verses that weren't inscribed on the uh, the, 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 the outside of the United Nations. And so here in Micah 1 verses uh, 1 and 2, Micah 4 verses 1 and 2, we read, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. My friends, when God sent Jesus Christ, his only Son, into the world to be our Savior, he began something new, something powerful that continues to this day and will continue until he finally returns. Our best days are not behind us, but the best is yet to come. Because when he comes again, we will dwell with him in joy and in peace forever. So whatever your situation today, whatever you may have done, however you may have fallen short, take heart. Don't be discouraged. Because the Lord is still our God. He has not forsaken you or any of his chosen and beloved people. He is not finished with you, but still has great plans for you. And he is doing something new in the world. And the best is yet to come.